Hey there, good people. Welcome to Visiting Hours, a Northern Health podcast offering an opportunity to learn a little about the lives, work, and dreams of our Northern Health family. My name's Steve, and I'll be your concierge behind the curtain. Come on in and join us for Visiting Hours. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay respects to their elders past, present and future, embracing their rich tradition of conveying information and ideas through stories and song by sharing our stories with you. We're visiting today with an emergency management specialist. He's a husband, father and firefighter who sits on the Epilepsy Foundation's Rare Epilepsy Consumer Advisory Group. He's a Richmond supporter, but still a really nice guy. <laughs> Jason Amos, welcome to Visiting Hours. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me here. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. And your title at Northern Health is the Manager of Emergency Management, which is a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, and my brain started ticking away on the drive in this morning thinking, what about if you also looked after new technologies in that space? Would that make you the manager of emerging emergency management? <laughs> and stay with me here. If you also looked after the timely deployment of those new technologies, would that make you the manager of the urgency of emerging emergency management? And then thankfully for all of us, I got to the car park and that was it. <laughs> that um, was the end. <laughs> but if you'd like yeah. to maybe explain to people exactly what it is that you, you do here, what your role entails and, and some of the things that you're doing at Northern. No worries, Steve. And I will start by saying when I'm introduced to new staff, it's interesting to hear the different um, position titles that I'm given as well. Um, so don't worry. It's, I'm used to hearing every sort, but ultimately uh, my position here is here to help our staff um, and ensure... Um, along with many other departments, ensuring the safety of everyone in our premises. Um, so I guess broadly speaking, the emergency management unit, um, I say unit, it's, a, it's myself and then supported by the Divisional Director of Subacute and Access, Laura Davies. Um, but we're here to focus again on those safety aspects for Northern Health. So our non-clinical codes, um, managing the, the training around those. And then also around the training aspects of our area warden or your, as all staff should know, um, undertaking their mandatory fire and emergency training for the last five years, the, the role has certainly expanded. So um, with the growth of Northern Health, but uh, particularly here at the Northern Hospital, um, we've had the new main ward block built. We've had Ward 23 um, mental health block also built. So it's it's expanded into working a lot more closely with our um, capital teams, our planning teams and engineering in um not only trying to operationalise those um, buildings when we're ready to go live, but starting in the earlier stages. So when we're starting to see the, what the floor plans will look like, being able to have input with emergency management around some safety um, aspects that will make our staff's um, lives a lot easier and our ability to uh, ensure that we have safety in place, you know, right from that planning stage through to go live and now dealing with, um, with the occupancy of, of patients or consumers. The role has also expanded from looking after our four main campuses um, to now looking after 14 separate facilities. So with the expansion into mental health or amalgamation with Kilmore District Health, uh, the role of emergency management has now grown to incorporate um, supporting those areas too. And I guess their um, collaboration would be key. Being a essentially a team of one, it is absolutely critical that I work with other teams right across Northern Health from the executive level down to our staff, you know, on the floor. I am privileged to be in this role where, um, you know, although I sit under this division, I actually sit right across the whole organisation. 
I think um, one one team in particular at the moment that I've been working very closely with is the um, simulation and safety team where we're going into our different clinical areas running um, in situ simulation. So on the floor, a number of exercises or simulations we've just completed is with um, Ward 23. So they've, that's a completely new area for them. So it's working uh, with the simulation team and the, the team uh, from our mental health services that we're going into there to undertake simulations such as our code red and orange, so fire and evacuation, um, code grey and code black, and then also our uh, code blue or met call. Um, it's hard for me to come and support our staff with those types of simulations just by myself. And the, the partnership from the teams has been absolutely amazing. Um, and it really helps our staff to to just be more comfortable, I guess, especially if it's a new environment, but with that environment and understand uh, before we actually bring in our new patients or consumers, what it's likely to be like and, you know, being able to adjust those. Um, so it, it supports our staff. And what actually led you to working at Northern Health? Like what's your background? Yeah, I, um, as I mentioned before, I've been here just coming up to five years now and I still don't quite understand how I ended up in health. Um, my background is fire services. So um, I think finishing year 12, didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. Um, I was a volunteer firefighter with the Country Fire Authority from the age of 16. So there was a little bit of wow. interest around um, fire and went to Swinburne to um, study around a diploma of fire technology. And, and that got me a job with the Country Fire Authority as well, um, focusing on structural fire safety, uh, bushfire sort of safety, um, community education, but also into the, the building and compliance roles. So uh, got sort of a, a lot of uh, different skills around dealing with disasters. And when you work for the Country Fire Authority, you don't just do the job you're paid for. Every summer, you're expected to um, sort of support in the incident management teams as well for major fires. Mm. Can you share any of your experiences with them? Yeah. So um, I've just finished up with the Country Fire Authority. So I've spent 17 years as a firefighter and um, that's with a, a number of uh, different brigades within the Macedon Ranges area. And the, the experiences that come with being a, a firefighter, you know, vary. I think that I, I wouldn't be in the role I am here today with Northern Health without those experiences. Um, being a firefighter, it's, I mean, obviously we think it's about holding a hose, putting out, um, you know, a big fire. It's not always that. It's, um, you're there to deal with an incident um, and make it safe, make sure people are safe. But then it's also, I guess, similar to what our clinical staff do here as well. You're dealing with community members who are potentially going through one of the worst times in their life. So having to deal with, you know, making sure that they're safe in themselves, that if they do need extra support and whether that's, you know, psychological support, that we can link them in with the local municipal council to get those um, services. Um, I think I've got many, many memories uh, that I can draw to, you know, the experiences within CFA, but there's there's one in particular, and it, it was the during the Black Saturday fires of 2009, um, and it was actually a couple of days after the main events going through, uh, I think it was St Andrews Township, and just, it was an eerie feeling. It was very, like, it was silent. But the thing that sticks in my mind is the fire went through so fast and so hot that the leaves were still on the trees, but they were all crisp, you know, burnt, but still on the trees, still on the sticks, all pointing in that one direction. Oh, and wow. it's, yeah, it's just, you know, try and understand how hot and how quick did it actually go through to essentially freeze time. 
And it's something, um, you know, in 17 years I've seen a lot of, you know, bushfires and that, but I've never seen that aspect just everywhere you looked around. And just the ferocity just with in one direction with all the wind in one and everything direction. just blowing it. It's all, it's basically just... Just frozen. And, you know, you think um, if you've had a, a bonfire at home or, you know, if, you know, done some burning off, et cetera, you, you see your leaves, you throw it on, you see them burn and they um, just fall apart, you know, into ash, et cetera. Whereas, yeah, this thing, it was just they were still on the stick, still on the branch, still on the tree all pointing in one direction. We're visiting today with Jason Amos. Stay with us to find out more about his life outside of Northern Health. So what's life like outside of work? You're, you're a family man? Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm lucky to have a, a beautiful wife, Harriet, uh, and two beautiful kids, Lincoln and Michaela. So Michaela's five, Lincoln's uh, seven and a half. Um, so a lot of time is, you know, is kept up with that family life as well. I think um, one thing with with our family is our uh, beautiful daughter, Michaela, has a, um, uh, I'll call it a disease, a disease called Dravet syndrome, which is a, a catastrophic type of epilepsy. Mm. Um, it's it's medicine resistant. It's a lifelong uh, disease, unfortunately, uh, and can result in uh, one in five children not actually making it to their adulthood. So it starts off usually um, sort of the first 12 months of life, uh, there's no real signs normally or towards mm. that latter part of the first 12 months, signs might appear. Uh, and that's certainly what happened uh, with Michaela. So all was going well until she was about eight months. Um, we, we were out at a friend's um, birthday party for their one-year-old child and uh, we just... I remember it was a really warm day and she'd gone to sleep in our arms and when she woke up, we were sort of laughing about it. You could pick up her arm and just let it go and, like, she was floppy, still, you know, conscious but just... Yeah, it was just weird with those arms. Mm. And then, yeah, not long after that, um, we started to see a seizure occur. And and it's from that point in time, um, from the very first seizure, for the first two, two and a half years of her life, uh, we would have her in hospital down at the Royal Children's Hospital for up to five days every one to two months. Wow. Um, and her, her seizures... Uh, started to get a lot worse. So if she had um, what's known as a tonic-clonic seizure, so sort of a, a full-body um, seizure, they were lasting upwards of 30 minutes even with medical intervention. So it's um, it, it certainly the first couple of years of her life um, was extremely challenging for us as a family. And I don't have any history or my wife doesn't have history of epilepsy in our family we, we know of epilepsy. We know it involves seizures. What I didn't realise at the time was how many different types of seizures there are. And now with the education that I've got uh, through our experiences with Michaela, I can absolutely go back before that day that she had her first seizure and see many other examples of other types of seizures. So um, things called myoclonic seizure, where it's like a, for us, we would be holding her as an infant in our arms and mm. she would, her whole body would just pulse out, like arms and legs would kick out, but it was enough uh, force that she would physically lift from our arms. And even as I talk about it today, I can um, pick up points where that occurred and we're like, you know, what was that? But yeah. it was a single event and nothing else happened. So yeah, we didn't think... Hindsight's twenty twenty. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we've learned so much um, from that. But with Dravet syndrome, it might start as a, a single type of seizure, so tonic-clonic, um, but those seizures can change into different ones. So absent seizures, tonic seizures, atonic, et cetera. And that's certainly what we've seen with Michaela. So Dravet syndrome is medicine-resistant, um, but that... 
that doesn't mean that medicine doesn't work. It just means that the medication she's on might work for one week, six weeks, six months, two years, and then the seizures might start to um, break through it's like that a protection. constant review, basically. Of yeah, what... correct. So we've had to adjust that. And certainly since about two and a half years, thankfully, and I'm touching wood here, we haven't seen her have any more tonic-clonic seizures, but we're certainly seeing other seizures. Um, but they're all uh, sort of self-managed at home. Um, so... Actual emergency hospital visits these days, again, touching wood, uh, yeah. you know, is is has been rare, but we're we're certainly still dealing with that at home. Um, so um, with epilepsy, there is a risk of what's known as sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, so SUDEP. Um, certainly, a, a child that has Dravet syndrome is at higher risk of that. So what that also means uh, for our family is. Our daughter every night has uh, a seizure monitoring camera set up um, in her room, so that's picking up the motion and the sound. We've got a, another monitor that sits under her mattress that again goes off the motion, and she's hooked up to a hospital-grade pulse oximeter as well um, every night or even when she's ill. Um, we've been lucky through support from NDIS to purchase a, um, a pulse oximeter that is wireless, so it um, goes off Bluetooth. Um, so she doesn't have to actually be hooked up to a right. machine. Um, yeah. So when she's like really ill and, and fevers are known to um, set her seizures off, we're able to sort of monitor off that as well. So it's really throughout the night having all these pieces of equipment continuously monitoring to then alert us as parents. Um, and, you know, since that was put in place, um, as parents, obviously we still need to work. We still need to – we have another child. We need to um, ensure that child's care for it as well. But in the early days, there was not a lot of sleep um, for us. Uh, whereas yeah. now technology is great. It's not the be-all and end-all, but we're able to, I guess, have assurances that we're monitoring her as best as we can. Sure. Yeah. And, and what about Lincoln? Like how's he, he coping with it Yeah, all? it's um, – it's funny. So he's now uh, seven and a half. He's, you know, at school, grade one. He's, uh, we're at that period where we're really seeing him develop. And he's now sort of asking us when, uh, sorry, with Drave syndrome, it's not just seizures. There's development delay. There's um, issues with mobility and many other sort of comorbidities that come into it. So um, now when he sees Michaela doing something that he's sort of not used to, um, but it is, Again, with development delay or behavioural issues, it might be that she's quite upset and, and getting over the top emotional as such. Um, he'll then come to us later and say, oh, is that because of her seizures? So he's got an understanding that there's something wrong. But um, I remember one of the early days, um, Michaela was having quite a severe seizure at home. Lincoln was still very young and uh, it was about midnight and we had to sort of get him up as well. Um, and this was all happening in our lounge room and Lincoln's sitting on the couch. We've got the TV on and the paramedics are in front of him and Lincoln's just there moving left and right trying to look around, you know, the paramedics. So, uh, you know, we've, while at that age he was seeing things, there was he didn't know really what's going on. Now he understands that, yeah, there is something. Um, she does have a medical condition. Yeah. And, I mean, that's his normal. Too. That's I, his I, normal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's, he's grown up with it. With but, it. What that means, and I think, you know, any parent that has a, a child with medical conditions, with um, disabilities, uh, will understand the importance of while you have to have more focus on, you know, the child that, that needs that more attention, you still have other children. So how do you try to balance that out? Mm. Um, and that's really, really difficult. And then if I try to think in, in Lincoln's shoes... 
he's seen his parents give more attention to this child. So how does that make him feel? And, you know, that's something that I still don't have the answer for. How do we make it even? But, you know, we try to do things such as it'll be a dad and son day. I'll take him fishing. We'll go to the movies uh, or something. Or, you know, my wife Harriet will take him somewhere. So, yeah, we're trying to to do things together, but at times we recognise that, no, actually we need to spend some more time with just him. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really difficult to find that balance. Mm, it's hard enough to find that balance under normal circumstances, let alone when you're caring for a, a sick child. It is. And, you know, if I think back to one of the previous Visiting Hours um, podcasts with um, Don Campbell, he, he spoke about coming home one day and I think his family and his kids were away and he found some pillows, I think it was on his couch, dressed in his clothes. And you know, he spoke about the messaging there. Uh, he was working, you know, many, many hours at that point and about trying to find that balance. When I heard that, it really came back to something that happened earlier this year, again with my son Lincoln, where he had woken up in the morning and he came in and he had a five cent piece and he gave me that five cent piece and said, Dad, this is for you. Okay, cool. Put it in my pocket. Um, about an hour later, we were leaving to walk to our local footy oval. Lincoln had Auskick and um, uh, Lincoln and Michaela were outside uh, the front door, I've walked out and Lincoln just comes up to me and goes, oh, dad, do you have that five cent piece still? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Pulled it out of my pocket. And he goes, oh, dad, that's so you can finish work early so you can come home and spend some time with this. And again, it's that message of everyone has to work. Uh, we need to, unfortunately, you know, to have the money come in. Um, but you need to have that work-life balance. And that was the, the biggest message that I had from my son that, okay, I need to work on that balance. Yeah. Um, and and that can be difficult and I'm still trying to work out how to to spend more time with him. I mean, we were lucky. Uh, I was recently able to have six weeks off. Um, so as a family, we went away. Um, but that's, that's sort of a, a short burst sort of thing. So how do we make that balance ongoing, um, you know, for the rest of our working lives? I'm often told by parents who have older children, embrace that time when they're young, you know, when they're asking, come and read a book, come and play with us. And you're like, oh, I'm too busy. I've got to do this. Um, the messaging, you know, that I, I get from my friends and colleagues who have older kids is just stop with that. You're too busy because this disappears really quickly. So it's about remembering that. Absolutely. And like, it's always easier when you've got a partner to share the load in those sort of situations too. Like how did you and your wife actually meet? Yeah, so um, I mean before I spoke about CFA and my involvement with there, um, my wife was also a member of a different brigade um, and the very first time I saw her, we were both out at a fire in Greenvale, so northern suburbs, and I, I just remember standing on the back of a fire truck and seeing this young, attractive, you know, female firefighter walk past and you're like, eh, okay. Uh, and then it was about a month or two later, we're at a mutual friend's um, birthday party and, yeah, met her there again and actually got the chance to speak to her. And uh, I think at the time there was a, a deal with my mobile phone carrier that had free SMS, so we were texting a lot. It was free for me. I didn't realise for her that it was costing her a lot. <laughs> so uh, she made the decision to ask me out because I wasn't doing that. Uh, <laughs> just going to be cheaper in the long run Exactly. Anyway. <laughs> just to go, if I'm going to spend this money on him, it might as well be worth it. So, um, yeah, again, you know, I, I talk about my time with CFA and I'm exceptionally thankful for that because mm -hmm. I'm not sure our paths may have met if it wasn't for that. Yeah, so. the sparks wouldn't have been lit. Exactly yeah. right. <laughs> and what about food? Um, if you could have, you know, one meal for the rest of your life, what do you reckon it would be? 
I'll split this into two. My liquid meal would be uh, whiskey um, and my my actual food meal, uh, it's seafood, any type of seafood I absolutely love. And uh, I've been lucky that my wife doesn't like seafood, so we go anywhere, there's seafood, I get it. Um, unfortunately, my son has now taken a liking to seafood, so I have to start sharing <laughs> it a bit share. more. <laughs> That's right. But at least you've got some common ground there as well. For <laughs> exactly right. So, uh, yeah, no, that's a cool little bonding thing. <laughs> yeah, no, excellent. Look, I feel like there's been a bit of bonding that's gone on here today as well. Um, you're carrying an enormous weight of responsibility here at work, but an even more important one at home. And you do it with such grace and kindness that there wouldn't be anybody in this organisation that wouldn't agree that you're one of the nicest guys out there. You've got big shoulders, but you've got an even bigger heart. And it's been an absolute honour to have you share with us today. But sadly, visiting hours are over. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. If you'd like to find out more information about Trave syndrome and how you can help research, or if you need support for any of the other types of epilepsy, please reach out to the Epilepsy Foundation at epilepsyfoundation.org.au.